Philippians chapter 15. We're, we're uh, getting there, wrapping this book up. And so I want you to think about this, and, I, and I'd love a little bit of audience response if, if you can. Audience, sorry, church response. You're not the audience. Excuse me, I'm not on television. Okay, participation from the saints. That's what we want right here. If you take away blank, then what's the point of blank? Okay, if you see, if you, see if you can come up with some of these. If you take away blank, if you take away taste, then what's the point of eating? Right? I know you need nutrition, but you might as well just give me that IV food. If you can't taste it, right? You with me on that? Then what's the point of? Okay, I, I've talked about. I, I enjoy mountain biking. If you can't ride down these really fun trails then there's no point in killing yourself to ride up the mountain, right? If you just ride to the top and, like, you're done, like, no, I want to go down. I want the f- so if there's no downhill, then what's the point of uphill, right? You with me on that? Does anybody have one? See, just take a minute. Turn to a neighbor, see if you got one, and then I want to know if there's a good one. Turn to a neighbor, say, here's a good one. Somebody have a good one we need to hear? If you don't have a... You got one, Jay? If you take away children, what's the point of marriage? If you take away children, then why have marriage? What if they're really disobedient children? I'm just kidding. <laughs> give, me, give me another one. Did you have one, Till? If you take away fun, what's the point of living? Okay. Who else has got one? Crystal. If there's no winner of the game, why should you watch? If there's no winner, why should we watch? These ties are terrible. I hate ties. Okay. We have another good one? Another fun one? TT? If there's no reading, what's the point of books? There's no reading. What's the point of books? Any other fun ones? No, I see people pointing at other people. I don't think they like that. Like, talk to that guy. If there's no, then there's no. Uh, I remember going on a hike with my youth pastor. I've talked about this before. But it was a hike that wasn't like a trail, you know, that you look up in a book and go. It was a, a lake he spotted from an airplane and then they threw toilet paper rolls out to kind of find their way and bushwhacked their way into this lake. But he said the fishing is the best trout fishing ever because no one ever goes in there. And you can just, so we hiked in little one-man rafts. But it wasn't a nice hike at all because there wasn't a trail. We just parked up this logging road and bushwhacked up this hill. And there was parts where you were crossing kind of some cliff faces on your toes and hands with a backpack on and I was not liking that and it was just this death march and I kept thinking this fishing better be good because this stinks this is terrible this is awful I think I was 19 so I should have been strong enough to do it and by the end it, we went through all these the last part went through all these briars and he's like just walk through like this so your arms don't get scratched and I was so tired I didn't even care I just kind of slunk through it, and I was all cut up, and I was like, I don't even care. 
But it was really good fishing. It was really good fishing. Because if there was not good fishing, then there was no part of doing the death hike. I mean, it was just that miserable. But it was really good fishing. So that is the whole idea today. If you take away the resurrection, then what's the point of Christianity? If you take out the resurrection, then there is no point in Christianity. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't do anything for us. It's, it's meaningless. That's what we're going to see today. We, and this is our big point, that the resurrection is why we have hope. The resurrection is why we have hope. So I want to re- we're going to cover a big chunk of ground here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 34. At least we're going to make a shot at it. So 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. So I always like to read it one time through, and let's just hear the whole thing in a big flowing motion, and then we'll come back and, and uh, look at some different pieces. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. Okay, we got it. You got it at home, I'm hoping. It says, uh, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you, some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. All right, so there's the whole piece we're going to try to cover. The point is that the resurrection is why we have hope. The resurrection is why we have hope. And so the first section here, I've titled it, The Necessity of the Resurrection. This is one of those passages that breaks down into nice little outlines. Pastors like that. Verses 12 to 19 are the necessity of the resurrection, the necessity of the resurrection. So if you look at it, he says, Now, if it is proclaimed, as Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you, some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So that's the situation. We, just, we looked at that two weeks ago, the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul went on, you can read that in the first verses, to say that he was raised, and then Peter saw him, and then all the apostles saw him, and then James saw him, and, and then a whole bunch of brothers saw him at one time. And Paul says, and I saw him. So it's a historical reality that lots of people saw Jesus alive after he was crucified and buried, they saw him alive. And some, for some reason in this church, were saying, you know what, no, there's no resurrection. That doesn't happen. That didn't happen. We don't get any indication why. It doesn't say why they're thinking that. It doesn't say where they're getting that idea. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a Greek context, not a Jewish context. In the Jewish context, you have a group of people called the Sadducees, and they did not believe in resurrection or angels, but you know, I'm, not, I'm doubting that's what's in view here. I don't know if uh, one of the Roman or the Greek ideas that they had was that the body was bad and that death was an escape from the body. So that, that could be in their thinking that when you die, your body's done and it's sort of a spiritual escape and now you're free. But the Christian hope is that you ha- are bodily raised. Jesus didn't rise as some spirit. He rose in the flesh. He said, hey, give me some fish. I want to show you I can eat. Touch me. I'm not a ghost. He, he made the point at his resurrection that he was bodily raised. And we'll see what that's like next, next section. But So somehow, some reason, a group of people in, in this church or influencing this church said, you know what, no. We don't believe in a bodily resurrection. We might not believe in anything. We might just believe you're, you get a life and then you're done. And, and that's influencing this church. And Paul says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to run this out. If we say there's no resurrection, I just want to play that out to its logical end. And so that's what these next verses do. He's like, okay, let's just run. That's your idea. Let's just run with it. So verse 13, he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So that's what happens. If you say there's no resurrection, then Jesus Christ isn't raised, and let's run that out. There's two implications here. The first one is ministry is useless. Ministry is useless. Verse 14, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Vain meaning empty, hollow, no point, no result. So he's saying, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And so the preaching here isn't the act of preaching, it's the content of the preaching. See, the, the message, the, verse, the thing that he just delivered them in verses 3, 4, and 5 there that was this creed about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that's the content of their preaching. He's saying, if Christ wasn't raised, then throw that out the window. That's empty. 
and your faith in Jesus, throw that out the window. That, that's empty. Verse 15, he says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we test about, testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. He said, basically, it makes us false teachers. If we're going around saying Christ is raised, but that's not true, then we're basically false teachers. So verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So the first outcome there was that ministry is useless. The second outcome is that faith is useless. That's hard to say. Faith is useless. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's pretty horrible, right? If Jesus just died, then you're not forgiven. If he didn't raise again, so then, then so that's, that's the key point there, right? Verse 17, if Jesus supposedly died for your sins but didn't rise, then he died just like any other person dies, and he didn't really forgive your sins. So you still got him. He's running out the logical conclusion. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That is the word for be destroyed, utterly ruined, beyond hope. So if Christ didn't really raise, you're not forgiven of your sins, and everybody who's already died, they're just gone. They're destroyed. It's over. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if it's just something that we're doing, a religious exercise while you live on earth because it makes you feel better and you like the socializing and uh, it's somewhere you want to go and every so often they barbecue something. If that's what this is all about, be pity means that people look on you and go, oh, poor you. You wasted all those time serving and all those Sundays and worked with all those kids for no reason. Poor you. Or it's you're of most people, you're of all people most miserable. That's another way you could render it. That you give all your time to this thing that actually isn't a thing. That's the logical conclusion. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, we're going to run this thing all the way out. If there's no resurrection, then there's no Christ. And everything we preach doesn't matter. And everything you believe doesn't matter. And you are not forgiven of your sins. And everyone who's died has had to pay for their sins and isn't utterly destroyed. So the... The resurrection is absolutely necessary for our faith. A lot of times we, stop, we talk about how Jesus died for your sins, which is true, but it only means something if he rose again. Otherwise, everybody dies. Why is he special? This is what N.T. Wright said. It's only the resurrection that makes the crucifixion appear anything other than a horrible end for another failed messiah if jesus doesn't rise on the third day then he's somebody who thought he was a messiah but he died in a really grotesque public horrible way but he's dead nonetheless but if he's risen then everything changes so the, the resurrection is absolutely necessary or christianity has nothing your faith means nothing jesus is nothing it's that critical that there's a resurrection of Jesus. So it's absolutely necessary. That was the first section. The second section well, talks about the victory of the resurrection. What did it accomplish? 
the victory of the resurrection. So we've seen it's absolutely necessary. If you take it out, the whole thing falls down. So you have to have the resurrection. But let's look at the victory. I love verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Come on, we need some talk back on that. Christ has been raised from the dead. Right? We're not going to play this silly game of he's not really risen, so your face. He's like, but that's, no. He just got done telling them in verses 3 through 9, all the eyewitnesses to it. Right? It's a historically verifiable fact. So he's saying Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, asleep which is a euphemism for have died. But the idea of using that sleep is because it's just a temporary doorway for believers. First fruits. What is your favorite first fruit? I like when you get somewhere, first week of June, local strawberries start showing up. In this. I'm not talking ripened in the truck from California strawberries. I'm not talking about that, where you cut them and they're white in the middle. Strawberries are not supposed to be white in the middle. I'm talking the ones that they get like at Hagen from boxes or you go to the U-Pick or wherever you go and you cut it and it's red. All You know what I'm talking about? Those start showing up first week of June and you eat that first one and go, oh, we've got two, three weeks of these babes. Local strawberries on the ice cream. Strawberry shortcake, one of my favorites. If it's made with biscuits, get out of here with your angel food cake. That is not strawberry shortcake. Biscuits. Okay. That, that gets me all excited when you get that first one. The first fruits. Sorry, someone cut in my throat. Okay, we're good. So he's saying Christ has been raised from the dead. The first victory, he's the first one. The first fruits, just like that first strawberry tells you it's strawberry season, there's going to be a whole bunch more of these and we're going to eat them and love them. Jesus is the first one from the dead saying he is the sign of resurrection. He's the first one risen from the dead. He's the first one. Now he, he healed some people on earth who died, but they were just revived, right? He called Lazarus out of the grave. Lazarus had to have two funerals, right? That was probably his trivia question. What's the only man with two funerals? Lazarus, right? He had to die again. He wasn't resurrected to eternal life. He was brought back to his earthly life, still had to live, and still had to die all over again. But Jesus is risen never to die again. Jesus, so he's the first one resurrected, will live forever, not to die anymore. So he's the first fruit. He's one we look to. If Jesus is raised, then we will be raised. How Jesus is raised is what we'll be like. And he'll get to that further down in this chapter. So we're looking at the victory. The, the first thing is that Jesus is raised and it's the first fruits of more. And then he compares it. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Right? We inherited death from Adam. The first human sinned, and God said it. If you eat from this, you're going to die. And so it didn't mean fall over dead when the fruit hit his mouth. It means death entered the world, and we are subject to that. Right? We inherit death by being human. So death comes from a human. Jesus, the Son of God, takes on human flesh and has brought the resurrection. So from by a man comes death, by a man has come the resurrection. In Adam we die. 
in Christ we shall all be made alive. That's starting of the victory, reversing it. We're under a curse. We're under the curse of death, and it comes from a man, and it's healed by the God-man Jesus. He says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So we have to make sure, sometimes this gets mixed up. The resurrection is a day. It is a moment in time. The resurrection of the dead. And so that's what it says. First, Jesus is raised, and when he returns, there's a moment of resurrection. There's a day of resurrection. Let me show you this from 1 Thessalonians 4.13. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, I mean those who have already died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So that tells us when, pe- when the saints have died, they're with Jesus, but they're not in their final state. Grace is with Jesus, but she's not in her final state yet. All the people who have died in Jesus are with him, but they're not in their final state yet. They're with him, though. Verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left, so people who are on earth when Jesus comes, and who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the people who have already died get to go first. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the, an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I think it's going to be loud. When he belabors that, a cry of command, the shout of an archangel, a trumpet blast. I don't think he'd be like, okay, you can wake up now. Boom, now, rise, I'm here. And so that's the final state. The bodies come out of the ground, the pieces come back together, they're glorified, the dead rise. And then it says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another. So there's this, the resurrection is the victory and that we're raised on a day in a moment. That's the hope. Each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. The Christian hope is a full bodily resurrection in a healed body, not a broken body, in a body that lives forever, not a body that dies. That's what we're hoping for. That's the victory of it. But he goes on. He says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So the victory is not only the resurrection of the saints. The victory is also the destruction of all these powers. Whenever these words are used in the New Testament, they're not or for the most part, I should say, they're not talking about, you know, the ruler of Russia and the ruler of Argentina and the ruler of wherever, right? That's not what they're talking about. These words are talking about rulers, forces, principalities that come up all through the New Testament. They're talking about spiritual forces of evil, spiritual rulers. That's what this is talking about. There, are, there is Satan and there are a host of beings that are opposed to God, opposed to his work. 
And so one of the victories of the cross and the resurrection is that he's going to destroy them all. Verse 25 says, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And so the fi- one of the final victories is all the forces that are hostile to God are finally cast into the lake of fire themselves. And so right now, this is a beachhead. There are rulers and forces in Whatcom County that want to enslave people, that want to hurt people, that are lying to people. And this is a beachhead, right? You take a beach and you set up camp and then your soldiers strike out from there. This is a beachhead on this corner. There are believers here who have left death into life. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we're no longer under their authority or under their rule. We're under the authority of Christ. And we go out from here into territory that these hostile forces are hoping to hold. And we spread the gospel and more people are transferred. So for whatever reason... God has allowed evil forces to exist and operate for a time. For whatever reason, he's allowed these rebels to do what they do. But all the while that the gospel is going out, more and more of their territory is plundered because Jesus is putting them under his feet. He's giving time. So the victory of the cross is our resurrection. The victory of the cross is also the final putting down of all forces of evil that are hostile to God and all the nations of the earth and the gospels going out is part of that plundering of the enemy's camp. And then when he's finally plundered, the full number is there, they're tossed into eternal destruction. How about that for some victory? So we're looking at the victory of the cross. And then he says this, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I remember doing a funeral for somebody six or eight years ago for a lady. And this often happens at at memorial services. I I don't know the family. I just knew the person who was here. And so I met her son. I met this lady's son. And he was a friendly guy, not a believer. And I remember talking to him after the service. And we were talking right out here in the lobby, and his, his mom was a believer in Jesus and, and followed her. And somehow we were talking about death, and I said, death is an enemy, and it will be destroyed. And he just looked at me for a while, and he said very quietly, he said, that is very powerful. And then he didn't really talk about it anymore. I don't know, I, it's like he'd never considered that before. But when you see this hey, death is just a natural part of life, don't believe it for a second. It's a horrible intrusion. It is not a natural part of life. It is the result of the fall. It is the the result of sin. It is not a natural part of life. This person that you love isn't there, right? They might be natural and that it's going to happen, but it's not welcome. It's not wonderful. You want to be with the people you love. You don't want them to die. We don't want to die. Scripture tells us God put eternity into our hearts. He made life. He made us to live. It's sin that brought death, not God. So that's the thing you can read it in Revelation 19 and 20. He's destroyed Satan and his hosts. He's destroyed all enemies. And then it says he casts death itself into the lake of fire. It's done. It's over. You don't face it anymore. 
When you're in Christ, you don't lose that loved one after 80 years. You get them for eternity. So Jesus defeats the power of death. He defeats all the hostile forces. And then finally the end, the last enemy that we face is thrown into the lake of fire. It's gone. It is gone. That's the victory of the resurrection. Jesus defeats the power of sin and death. So then it goes into this part here. It says, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So God has exalted his son. Jesus was obedient. You could read that in Philippians 2. He says, because he lowered himself, God has given him the name that's above every name. So God has put everything under Jesus. And then Paul clarifies here. But when it says all things are put in subjective, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection. So, he's, so God didn't put himself under Jesus is what he's saying. He says he put everything under Jesus' feet, but God's not under Jesus' feet. That's what he's going to get at. When all things are subjected to him, so when Jesus has done all that, all enemies are gone, death is gone, when it's all done, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. I think it's sort of like, hey, the job's done, Dad. I think that's what it is, right? He's like, I've done it all. Death is gone. Sin is gone. All the work's done. Here you go. And God is all in all. Reigns forever. That is the victory of the resurrection. So we've seen that it's absolutely necessary. If Jesus doesn't rise, then none of this matters. But since Jesus has risen, the victory is that we will be raised bodily, a bodily resurrection on the last day. And all the hostile forces of evil will be put down, and death itself will be put down, and everything will be under Jesus' feet. And he says to the Father, it's all done. You reign forever. That's the victory. So the resurrection, that's why we have hope. That's why we keep going. That's why we go to memorial services and we're sad, but we're just sad for now. Right? It's goodbye for now. Shouldn't have looked at you, Eric. <laughs> Don't do that. Okay. We have hope now. We keep going. So there's one last part, and I see it as the motivation of the resurrection. We've seen it's absolutely necessary. We've seen the victory. And this last part is the motivation. What does it make us do? And right away we get into a little bit of trouble. Some of you have been waiting. Like, what? what? Did you really read that? Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, this is definitely weird. And uh, the, we, what we've got to figure out is, what's he trying to say? He's not trying to say, so start getting baptized on behalf of people who are dead. That's not what he's saying. He's, putting a, he's saying what would motivate somebody to do that. Okay, that's the point he's making. He's saying, what would motivate people to be baptized on behalf of a dead person if they're not raised at all, then there's really no point in that. So he's, he's making the point that why would you take that step if there's really no resurrection, then there'd be no point to that step. But he's saying since people are taking that step, it's evidence that they're motivated because they believe in a resurrection. So we step back and go, well, what is that? Are we supposed to do that? Is he telling them to do that? All the commentators are like... Yeah, we don't know what he's talking about. That's really weird. Because there's no other part of Scripture that says you can be baptized on behalf of another person. 
that you can't have faith on behalf of another person. You have to have your own faith. In fact, in Hebrews, it tells us it's appointed for a man to die once and then comes the judgment. Like, there's no, like, oh, but wait, that guy just got baptized for me. Like, no, you're before the Lord. So I'm thinking he's talking about a practice that was happening. I don't even know if it's happening in the church. It could have been some cultic practice in their community where people are being baptized on behalf of dead people. So I don't think he's telling them to do that. I think he's just making the point, why would anyone be motivated to do that if, in fact, there's no resurrection? So he's getting at the issue of motivation. He's getting at that issue of, he's still kind of back to that point of, uh, it has to ma- there has to be a resurrection or why would you do anything? Why would it matter? So that's what he's saying. He's not advocating, so go ahead and start doing that. I don't, that's, that's not the point he's making. He's making the point of motivation. Why would you be motivated to do that if it doesn't matter? If, if there's no resurrection. But there's no command to do that. There's no other passage that tells us to do that. We don't need to do that. So that's about as far as I got with that one. So the motivation. There's a resurrection, so we're motivated to try to reach people. Verse 30, he's going on about the motivation. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Say, so what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So he's saying, why would I do what I'm doing? Paul's saying, I'm in danger every hour. You can read the list in Philippians of all he went through. He's talking about I was beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and hit with rods and canes and left for dead. And, I mean, he just went through all kinds of this thing with beasts in Ephesus. There was a whole riot that started. They wanted to tear him apart in Ephesus. It's like, why would I go through all of that to bring you the gospel? If there's no resurrection, I wouldn't do it. He said, I would just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. It's the pirate life. Take what you can, give nothing back. He's like, if there's really no resurrection, if there's really no Jesus, then who cares about anybody else? Just do whatever you want to do. And this is kind of the way a lot of people live. I'm going to eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what feels good. I'm going to do what's right because I've only got 70, 80 years and I'm not going to listen to you. I'm certainly not going to worry about anyone else's problems. I'm just going to do what I want to do. But Paul's saying, no, because there is resurrection. I'm willing to suffer and to be beaten and to struggle to tell you the gospel. But he's saying, if it doesn't exist, then why would I go through all that? Why would I sacrifice my one life on earth to help people at great cost if there's no resurrection? So he's saying, since there is resurrection, that's what motivates me to suffer. And then he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. So the next thing he says is, Since there is a resurrection and your life counts, really think about who you're hanging out with and what you're doing. That's kind of what he's saying. If you're going to hang out with people who aren't following Jesus, who aren't believing in the resurrection, they're going to bring you down. And then he says, wake up from your drunkenness and stop sinning. He's like, your life is short. Everything counts. You're going to stand before a resurrected Christ. Don't waste it. He's He's like, don't waste it. Whoever's influencing this church that there's no resurrection, I think he's saying you need to distance yourself from that. 
Because if you're going to believe there's no resurrection and your life doesn't really count, then you're going to party your life away and you're going to waste the whole thing and live in terrible regret for eternity. So here he's like, no, wake up from that. This matters. Jesus is raised. Everything counts. You want to live for him. If someone's bringing you down and pulling you away from Christ, then you need to create some space. Get away from that. And then he finally says, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He's saying, you need to tell them. You need to tell them about the resurrection. You need to tell them about the gospel. You need to communicate to them. He's like, there's some around you that never heard. What are you doing? He's kind of like, I say this to your shame. There's people that you haven't told yet. That's kind of what he's finally getting at. So the final step there is the motivation. The resurrection motivates us to suffer. The the resurrection motivates us at Christmas time to give money to plant churches in a country that we've probably never been to and people we're not going to meet because we want them in India to hear the gospel, right? That's what motivates us. The resurrection will motivate us to share the gospel even if you're rejected. The resurrection will motivate us to live sacrificially when people all around you are living selfishly. Right? It motivates us. The resurrection will motivate us to distance ourselves from people in the party life because we want our life not to be numb but to count. So it motivates how we live. It motivates what we do. And finally, so the resurrection, this is why we have hope. This is why we rejoice when the saints go home when we have a memorial service and we don't weep horribly, uncontrollably because we'll never see him again. Now we'll see him again. So we have hope. This is why uh, when we're faced with wars and rumors of wars, we're not in sheer terror. Right? There's certainly wars and rumors of wars bubbling out there. Oh go, yeah, and it could get bad. But Jesus is raised and has defeated all that and we'll keep going. And this is why we have hope when you get the bad diagnosis. And when the other another body part gives out on you, and you go, man, this thing is just not working anymore because you're going to get a resurrected body that works forever. And this is why we have hope and we're out talking to people, people whose lives are a mess. And we go, you know what? It doesn't have to be this way because Jesus is risen. This is what motivates the whole thing. Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in doubt. We don't have to worry. We can sacrifice greatly because Jesus is risen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being alive. We thank you that in you is the ultimate defeat of evil and that we won't face it forever. We thank you that death will be thrown out forever. Lord, get us motivated to live for you. Get us motivated to sacrifice for you. Lord, I pray that you would separate us from those things that bring us down. And I pray that this would indeed be a beachhead in Bellingham where the good news goes out and more and more people are transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your son. We just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.